But spending one's prime years uh, working in a factory uh, and living in the kind of suburb idealized by Leave it to Beaver and other mid-century popular culture would have sounded like a slavish nightmare to the artisans and farmers of 18th and 19th century America, who had a very different understanding of what activities uh, and forms of association were suitable to free men and women. Welcome to the Acton Vault podcast, a product of the Acton Institute for the Study of Religion and Liberty. I'm Eric Cohn, executive producer. For this episode, we're going back in time to March 2022 for this talk from Samuel Goldman at our Acton Lecture Series. In 1867, Senator Charles Sumner posed the question, are we a nation in the wake of the Civil War? As America confronts new extremes of polarization in the 21st century, the question is inescapable again. Samuel Goldman explores the ways the U.S. does and does not correspond to historical conceptions of the nation-state. Goldman is an associate professor of political science at George Washington University, where he is also director of the Loeb Institute for Religious Freedom. In addition to his academic work, Goldman is an affiliate scholar at the Acton Institute and has been published in the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, and numerous other publications. You can find additional resources in the show notes for this episode, as well as previous episodes on our website at acton.org slash podcast. And if you like this program, you can help us reach even more listeners by sharing it with a friend and leaving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. We welcome your comments as well. Acton Vault is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. We are delighted today to welcome Dr. Samuel Goldman to our lecture series. Dr. Goldman is Associate Professor of Political Science at George Washington University, where he is also Director of the Loeb Institute for Religious Freedom. In addition to his academic work, he is a national correspondent at The Week and has contributed to The New York Times, The Wall Street Journal, and numerous other publications. Professor Goldman is the author of God's Country, Christian Zionism in America, as well as After Nationalism, both published by the University of Pennsylvania Press. He holds a bachelor's degree from Rutgers and his doctorate from Harvard, both in political science. So please join me in welcoming Dr. Goldman. Thank you, Stephen, uh, for that generous introduction. Uh, and thanks also to the Acton Institute for the invitation to speak. But most of all, uh, thanks to you for joining me this afternoon. Uh, it's the practice of most speakers to thank their audiences at, at the conclusion of their remarks. But I, I've always thought that that didn't make much sense, since by the end, there's nothing they can do about it anyway. Um, I therefore prefer to thank people at the beginning where they still have the opportunity to flee uh, and find other uses of their time. And I'm, I'm grateful again um, that you've used yours to listen to me. So my topic today, uh, as advertised, um, is a question. Are we a nation? 
And this is, of course, a weighty question to consider over lunch. It is also a provocative question. And it may seem as if it is a question that needs only to be asked under uniquely polarized conditions. And there is a whole genre of commentary, uh, both academic and journalistic, uh, decrying the fragmentation and disunity uh, of American life um, at this historical moment. But I think that it's a question that is not unique to our times. To the contrary, uh, questions about the character and criteria of the American nation go back to its very founding. The Declaration of Independence, in its first paragraph, affirms the right of one people to assume a separate and equal station among the powers of the earth. In the last paragraph, though, it refers to independent states in the plural uh, and groups its signers by the states that they represent, suggesting that there is an ambiguity even at the iconic moment of national unity. The same ambiguity is present in the very name of the political community established by the Declaration, the United States of America. Uh, this description has, as the pluralist theorist Horace Callan once noted, a peculiar ambiguity. Rather than naming the land of a particular people, it describes a specific institutional arrangement uh, in part of a larger landmass. And it may be useful to know uh, that in the 18th century and even into the 19th century, the term America was often used to describe the whole North American continent and sometimes the whole Western Hemisphere. So this is a very different kind of name uh, in comparison to England, the, the land of the Angles, uh, Scotland, the land of the Scots, or Deutschland, the land of the Deutsch. Other factors might also lead us to question the national character of the United States. The term nation is derived from the Latin natio, or, or birth. Uh, and although it has been used in a wide range of ways, which is one of the reasons that debates about nationalism uh, are so interminable, they often revolve around definitions rather than the, the content at hand. Um, but nevertheless, many, if not all, of the standard definitions appeal to some idea of common descent. But that has never really been true of the population of the United States. Uh, even if we restrict uh, membership to the free whites who were initially considered citizens. Even in the 18th century, uh, before the commencement of mass immigration in the middle of the 19th century, what became the United States was notable uh, for the ethnic variety of its inhabitants. That diversity is less unique than we sometimes think, though. Uh, many other nations emerged from quite various origins involving immigration, imperial expansion, and sometimes outright subjugation. The English are not all descendants of the Angles. Celts, Saxons, Vikings, and Normans are all prominent in the mix. And the French are not 
all descendants of the Franks. Uh, just ask uh, the Bretons, Burgundians, and Basques. So in all of these cases, uh, the unifying features of the nation seem to have less to do with DNA than with culture. To be a member of the nation is to speak, to think, and to live in a certain way. Yet here, too, the United States seems different. We do have a historically dominant language. The name of that language, though, is English, not American. Uh, and of course, it is shared not only uh, with its country of origin, uh, but also with other former British colonies, and today uh, by a globalized media and business community. American plurality, when it comes to religion, is even more baffling. The British colonies of North America uh, were famously populated, at least in part, by dissidents and heretics. Many were fleeing not only from dominant institutions at home, but also from each other. In most cases, uh, it is anachronistic and somewhat misleading to describe them as seeking religious freedom. Uh, to the contrary, many, although again not all, were fleeing uh, religious pluralism and hoped to establish communities in which everyone would agree. But by the early 19th century, at the very latest, it was clear that this would not be possible. Now, the Constitution prohibits only a nationally established church, although uh, in the period that was a significant concession to religious diversity. The states were permitted to maintain their own religious establishments, uh, which they did until 1833 uh, when Massachusetts uh, abolished the so-called standing order of the Congregational Church. But those establishments broke down, not under constitutional constraint, but rather under sheer unpopularity. Despite recurring hopes for a kind of interdenominational and more recently interfaith consensus, it has proved extremely difficult to get working majorities of Americans to agree on the proper role of religion in public life, let alone the content of religious teaching. And in this context, people often forget that the case for so-called strict separation of church and state, uh, the phrase, of course, um, popularized by Jefferson, was not originally advanced by secularists. Um, it was rather promoted by Baptists and other Protestant dissenters. Um, and yet later, um, toward the turn of the 20th century, it was adopted by what would come to be called mainline Protestants who wanted to relegate Catholic institutions to the margins of American life. So here, too, uh, I think we find um, more evidence of contestation and disharmony than of union. These are not the only criteria of nationhood, though. Uh, since the stirrings of independence in the 1760s, uh, foreign observers, including Burke, and extending um, to include the likes of Tocqueville and James Bryce, have identified certain political beliefs as the bond of unity among the American people. 
using surprisingly similar language. Uh, they speak of shared assumptions about the importance of individual freedom, a preference for local over centralized and distant government, and uh, a suspicion of a scriptive hierarchy of, of status um, that is uh, inherited uh, rather than the result of some personal accomplishment. These beliefs were not an articulated political philosophy, and many of these observers also pointed out how little interest most Americans had in books or in theories or in ideologies. On the contrary, the assumptions that seemed to define American political life were often regarded as more similar to religion. And in the 20th century, it became popular to speak of these premises or assumptions uh, as the American creed, um, effectively a, a civil or political religion uh, that substituted or compensated for the lack of theological and denominational consensus. But it's not evident that creeds are a sufficient bond of connection among such very different people. A nation is said to involve mutual obligation, uh, including and especially sacrifice. But will we, we be willing to make such sacrifices on behalf of those with whom we share certain opinions, but not the bonds of common experience. This is the recurring case against uh, so-called creedal or civic nationalism, um, that it's simply too thin and brittle to survive political, economic, and military challenges. And what about those with whom we disagree about the priority among elements of the American creed, uh, or about the relevance of those ideas altogether? Are they like family members whom we love and cherish despite their idiosyncrasies? Um, and uh, probably many of you, like me, have seen uh, around every holiday um, there is a, a rash of um, newspaper articles about how you can get along at Thanksgiving or, or Christmas or some other family gathering with your uncles and brothers and cousins and so on with whom you bitterly disagree. And the, the implication, of course, is you have to love them and stick with them despite that disagreement. Or are those who challenge one or more aspects of the American creed more like the, the heretics and dissenters of old who had to separate or be separated from those with different convictions? In one sense, the American creed is moderating. That is, it helps us to live together as members of a political community despite ethnic, religious, and cultural differences. But in another sense, it can exacerbate disagreements that might otherwise be subsumed under shared culture, 
and yet another observation um, that foreign visitors to the United States uh, have often made is that in Europe, it is much easier for people who disagree politically to get along because they have a sense that they are all Frenchmen or all Germans or all Dutch or whatever um, that is more intense than their disagreements about party preference or even ideology. Um, that has historically proved difficult in America, and I think the present polarization reflects that tendency. That's why in the 20th century, I think, it became common to speak of the American way of life as the lived instantiation of American principles, uh, appealing not only to ideas, but to the way that they are manifest uh, in experience. I have not made a scientific study of the use of the phrase, the American way of life, but my unscientific observations suggest that it involves some combination of economic upward mobility, uh, personal self-reliance, uh, the nuclear as opposed to extended family, um, and a preference for very large automobiles, among other factors. As far as I can tell, that's what people mean when they talk about the American way of life. And these days, to uh, return to the observation with which I, I opened, um, people usually invoke the American way of life um, to claim that it is threatened or disappearing. That raises difficult questions of political economy that I am not equipped to answer. Um, I am a dilettante in many fields. Uh, I have posed at different times and in different settings as a political theorist, as a historian, and as a scholar of religion without having any real credentials in any of those disciplines. Uh, but I never pretend to be an economist, so I'm not going to talk about that. Uh, but what I can say, consistent uh, with these intellectual roles that I've assumed, um, is that this, this ideal, this understanding of what the American way of life involves, has actually changed quite a great deal uh, over time. Uh, the dominant note today, particularly in these laments that the American way of life is threatened or disappearing, um, is for the industrial middle class that flourished in the middle of the 20th century. Um, not coincidentally, it was at the same time uh, that the term American way of life uh, began to be popularized. As far as historians can tell, um, it was probably used for the first time in an intentional sense um, in the 1930s when it was taken up as a slogan um, for uh, the real estate industry. Um, but spending one's prime years uh, working in a factory uh, and living in the kind of suburb idealized by Leave it to Beaver and other mid-century popular culture would have sounded like a slavish nightmare to the artisans and farmers of 18th and 19th century America who had a very different understanding of what activities uh, and forms of association were suitable to free men and women. 
So we can speak of the American way of life at any given time. And with a sufficient degree of abstraction, of course, we can find continuities between the American way of life as understood 50 years ago and as it was understood 150 years ago. But in detail, there is enormous variation. Uh, and I think the extent of that variation tends to get lost in appeals to uh, a, an exaggerated, if not altogether imaginary, historical continuity. Further, the reality of the American way of life in, in our times uh, is not altogether appealing. The most generically American landscapes and habits are also some of the most boring and, at their worst, inhumane. And to, uh, for an example of what I mean, just visit your nearest strip mall. The most appealing locations and cultures are those that retain some highly distinctive regional, historical, or natural characteristics. And that includes uh, this particular corner of, of Michigan, which, as, as you know, um, has a very distinctive and interesting history, but also New York City, or the Blue Ridge Mountains, or Monument Valley, or Miami. All of them are America, but none of them is simply American. So does this all mean that we are not in the end, a nation. I don't think that conclusion follows, but we have to be specific about what we mean by nation. We are not one people unified by origin, by faith, or by, by ideology. Despite periodic attempts to settle on a single version of the American story, uh, we are only loosely bound by shared narrative as well. Uh, nor is this a new condition. Uh, once again, and I discuss this uh, at much greater length in my book, um, greater length at my book, but it's still a short book, so I strongly encourage you to read it. Um, a, a high degree of dispute, uh, of polarization, uh, and unfortunately, even violence has been characteristic of American life for more than 200 years. But neither are we a collection of distinct nationalities, uh, as in the European empires that collapsed in the 20th century. The rewards and pressures of American life are such that organized separatism around ethnic, religious, or cultural qualities uh, tends to fail. And yet, those qualities are not simply effaced by a stable and cohesive national culture. It is a fortunate irony of American history that both radical assimilationists and radical pluralists have been right and wrong at the same time. America changes all who join it, but in the process, they also change America. Uh, and there is no reason to expect that this process will stop in the future. So are we a nation? Well, we are a body of citizens, 
whose participation sustains particular institutions at local, state, and, as we say, federal levels. Those institutions were not uh, the disembodied products of abstract thinking. They were established by particular people uh, in a particular time and place. But they were bequeathed to future generations that those founders did not know, and they have been applied to, within geographic boundaries that assumed their final dimensions only within living memory. We are a nation so long as we accept that inheritance with the understanding that we are not merely executors charged with obeying to the letter instructions that we have been given, but rather partners in an enterprise whose outcome we cannot clearly discern. That is a difficult and often a fearful task. Um, and I, I think, and this is also something I discuss at greater length in the book, um, that you can trace um, recurring American identity crises uh, extending back um, to uh, the, the 1790s, at least. Um, and the political science scientist Samuel Huntington um, calculated once that they, they seem to happen about every 60 years. So if you think of the 1960s and early uh, 70s as our last big national freakout, we are right on, uh, right on schedule for a relapse. Um, but uh, I also think and, and believe that um, that responsibility is good enough. And I have been interested uh, to see just in the last few weeks um, as we've been confronted um, with the, the specter of um, interstate aggression of a kind that had been thought to belong to the past, um, some diminution of culture war hostilities or return to seriousness. And I, I, I think that's not coincidental. Um, uh, Americans tend to uh, turn against each other and to be at each other's throats when we have nothing else to think about. Um, and it's sometimes in the encounter with violence and oppression elsewhere that we are reminded of what we do have in common. So uh, although I, I am not um, an optimist exactly, uh, I do try to be hopeful uh, and believe that we have uh, in our history um, and in our culture resources for, uh, if not resolving, then living with the fragmentation and polarization uh, that we experience. Um, but uh, ultimately, it is a wager rather than a proof. Um, and I think that it is in recognizing the precariousness and danger of this enterprise that we can also uh, derive the greatest appreciation for its success so far um, and inspiration for its success in the future. 
So thank you very much. I was instructed to speak uh, for about 30 minutes, uh, and I think that I have hit my mark. Um, and I am told uh, that the good people of Acton will call on you, and you can then pose your questions to me. Thank you for that. Hey, um, how much do you think that uh, the way that things are framed and the way things are communicated, and maybe lack of communication, uh, affects us as a nation? For instance, uh, the Ford Museum here in town is doing a new series on democracy in crisis, to which I'm thinking, well, yeah, this is going to be great. They're going to talk about federalizing elections and talk about adding states and talking about packing the Supreme Court. But alas, they're only speaking about January 6. Mm -hmm. So at, at, <laughs> how does that affect us uh, being unified as a nation? Right. Well, so, so part, I mean, part, part of the problem you're describing is that any treatment of any topic is selective. You, you, can't, you, you, can, you can never talk about anything. And I know this from personal experience because I, people review my book and I give these talks and everyone always says, well, why didn't you talk about this? And I said, well, you know, that, that's important and I don't deny it, but that's not the story that I'm, I'm telling. So I don't think the problem is being selective as such. There always has to be some criterion um, of, of selection. The problem, uh, I think, comes, and that may be what's happening with this museum, I, I don't know, um, when the principle of selection seems simply partisan or ideological um, and is, is experienced by people on the other side of the, the, uh, the decision um, as an attempt to exclude or belittle or, um, or demean. So you can never satisfy everyone. Um, and I think that's, that's an, unrealistic, uh, an unrealistic goal. But I do think it's important to ask, as authors and speakers do and as museum curators do, um, when we choose to include these topics or figures or, or events, what are we choosing not to include and how is that going to appear to our, to our audiences? It may have been uh, George Washington, and I'm not sure, that made the comment that our form of uh, democratic uh, Republican government would only work for a virtuous people. And uh, are we still a virtuous people? <laughs> so I think uh, if, if we're thinking of the same remark, um, it, it's usually attributed to uh, to John Adams. Um, and it's, it's something like... Um, uh, um, I think what he says is, is, a, is a moral and religious people, um, which is important because, of course, it identifies a specific source or, or form um, of, uh, of morality. Um, I think the comment is, is right, I mean, and it's, it's, it's echoed in um, The Federalist, which is often described as having a sort of purely rationalist or, or um, interest-based account of Republican government, but it actually says, um, uh, presumes virtue in a higher degree, a republic re presumes virtue in a higher degree than any other form uh, of, of government. And I, I tend to, um, to agree with that. 
But I would also uh, note that concerns of insufficient virtue are nothing new. Um, and Adams himself was, uh, was, was horrified by the course that American politics took even within, um, even within his lifetime. So I, I, I agree uh, with the comment and with what I take to be the spirit of your question. Um, I'm skeptical, though, of sort of historical declension narratives. We used to have it figured out, and we were great and good, but we have become degenerate uh, and, and bad. Um, I think there is a, a constant struggle to live up to the requirements um, of Republican self-government, um, and I, I hope to contribute to its favorable, again, if not solution, because I don't think there are permanent solutions, um, at least its success. Um, but I, I also think that appealing to a virtuous past can be counterproductive in, in, in doing that. So if, for me, the question is not for you, of course. I'm sure that you are a virtuous and active uh, man, as is everyone in, in uh, every person in this audience. Um, but okay, so what 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 are you doing? What are what are what are we doing in our own lives to meet that uh, that standard? Uh, so my question would be: So how much of America do you think is being influenced either by a multinational corporations like, um, say, like Amazon, very large, or Apple? or billionaires like Coke or Bezos, how much of America's vision are we just living by someone else's vision for our life? Um, I think less, less than critics sometimes suggest. Um, and that, that criticism comes in sort of left and right flavors. So. Um, on the right, you, you find attacks on, you know, Bezos or George Soros or other uh, transnational billionaires who are influencing uh, us in all of these malign ways. On the left, it's it's uh, the Cokes or there are a few other um, uh, sort of boogeymen. Um, I, I think that that's often uh, a way of distracting attention and responsibility, again, from, from ourselves. So I, I, I don't think um, that if, um, you know, Jeff Bezos or, or uh, George Soros were to disappear from the earth tomorrow, our politics and culture would look terribly different. Um, and that suggests to me that their, their influence is not so great as has, as has been claimed. But, do, but maybe you have a, a specific example. Um, well, I think of like Zuckerberg. Right. Like is Zuckerberg with uh, what we, he was doing with elections and whatnot, or the Cato Institute. Right. And how they can sway public opinion. I think of also like Big Pharma and how, to my understanding, they own um, the major news networks because uh, like most of their funding is coming from their ads which seems everyone's watching these things or getting their opinions from them in a lot of ways. Yeah, I mean, I, I just, I, I don't see much evidence of how um, the perspectives or, or preferences or, or other influences um, have determined people to act in ways 
that they otherwise wouldn't. And where, and where they have, and um, pharma is a good example of this, it's, it's not through media, um, it's through fairly direct forms of economic incentives. And it's a whole other topic, and again, I don't, I don't even pretend to be um, a, uh, an, an economist, um, but there were, there were and are very clear incentives for doctors to prescribe certain drugs, which clearly contributed, even if it was not the sole cause of the opioid crisis. I'm more inclined to think that that's the, the influence that we should worry about um, more than um, commercials on TV or, or Facebook algorithms. Thank you for your talk. Um, I wanted to uh, see if I could bring together two remarks you made and just ask you a question along those lines. You mentioned bequeathing institutions over generations. And then you made the examples of different locales taking on unique characteristics. So yes. you specifically pointed out Miami, and that drew this question to mind. Miami, of course, brings the contours of, a, of an oftentimes Cuban, Latin American culture, uh, very unique characteristics. What do you make of nationhood in a situation where you have immigration and simultaneously the native population actually declining as opposed to growing simultaneously with immigration? And does that cause any concerns with this notion of bequeathing from generation to generation if the native population itself is declining apart from the immigration that it's, uh, that it's observing? Right. Well, I don't think it's exactly the first time that's, that's happened. Um, and speaking of recurring freakouts about national identity. There, there was a similar freakout in the early 20th century uh, when it became clear that the historic Anglo-Protestant or at least Northern European majority, um, mostly in uh, rural areas, was being not replaced exactly, the people weren't disappearing, but was shrinking relatively to immigrant or recent immigrant, uh, you know, immigrant descended populations um, in cities. Uh, and there were the same dire predictions, almost word for word, um, the, the same dire predictions of what was going to, uh, going to happen that in the, the press of the late 19th and early 20th century, um, and yet that's not what happened, as, as we all know, and one of, one of the ironies of, the sort of nostalgia that's become common for the middle of, of the 20th century is that period is the refutation of the nightmares of 50 years earlier when it was claimed, you know, these people will never become Americans, they'll never be capable of participating in, uh, in Republican government, everything is doomed uh, and, and we, are, we are finished. So the fact that th this happened in the past doesn't mean that it necessarily will happen again and conditions economically, politically and culturally were quite different in ways that could produce a, a, different, a different outcome. Um, but a problem is not or, or, or a risk is not necessarily a terminal problem. Um, and and I, I admit that I, I just find it viscerally unconvincing and distasteful when it's suggested that certain people in certain places cannot possibly 
embrace American life and participate fully uh, in it because, again, um, every every group of whom that's been said in the past um, has been, it's been found to be false of every single group uh, of whom that's been said in the past. Certainly, I just, and I just wanted to clarify, I wasn't, uh, didn't want to suggest I'm yeah. very pro-immigration. Um, I just uh, right. thought that new phenomena where we actually have the domestic population declining in, in size. And right. if that might Yeah, yeah, us. I mean, and, and to, I, I'm not suggesting um, suggesting otherwise um, this this is this is the subject for another book probably I mean the the decline in uh, in birth rates and reliance on immigration um, to maintain a sufficient population of, of workers is not just an American problem um, and not not just a Western problem. Um, on the contrary, it's even more severe in China, Japan, um, and uh, South Korea and Asian countries. So we have it relatively good uh, by by comparison. But that seems to go much deeper um, than characteristically American concerns about immigration or um, or assimilation. And if, if if I knew if I knew the answer to that, I would tell you what it was. I mean, I I, conf- I confess uh, that I don't. And um, interestingly, one of one of the marks of assimilation, for better or for worse, is that uh, when immigrants come to this this country, their birth rates begin declining almost immediately. Rather than uh, maintaining the larger families uh, that are common where they come from, um, or that they sometimes have in in the first in the first generation, so that seems to be a broader problem that has something to do with an affluent society. Um, again, rather than a specifically American one uh, related to immigration or assimilation. We now have a question from our live stream audience. Paul asks. National boundaries have been fluid in the past. When you think about the United States, what is your expectation about future changes to our boundary? For example, could there be an expansion or some regional restructuring? Um, I, I think outright expansion is probably unlikely, uh, despite um, the idea floated in the last administration um, of purchasing Greenland. Um, probably American American borders have um, have assumed their their final shape. Although, who knows? You know, the events of of the last couple of years have foiled so many predictions for so many things that anything um, anything is is possible. Um, as for uh, internal structure, I mean, I think changes in actual boundaries. Are probably also unlikely. Although I also think that's that's too bad. Um, I think one of the problems in American governance is that um, the relatively small uh, number of, of jumbo states with populations greater than 20 million are, are really just too big and disproportionate to the other states. So some people talk about establishing new states. I would rather break up uh, existing big states, and whether that would mean um, three Californias or four Texases or, or or two uh, Floridas, or or whatever. Um, I, I think restoring states to more manageable and proportional sizes would actually uh, be be helpful. But I, I also um, doubt that anyone is going to listen to me um, in that respect. Um, what I do, what I do hope, is that we 
reconcile with our traditions of federalism as a way to manage some of these tensions. Um, our, our national or, or federal government is just not set up um, to provide uniform rules and guidance on so many aspects of life. And even within um, the, the national or federal government, the executive branch is really not set up uh, to do that. So I think the more uh, power is, is concentrated in the executive branch, both in, in the White House and in the, its unelected administrative um, corollaries, um, the more difficult we're going to, to find it uh, to get along um, because there is no way to provide answers to these various questions from Washington that are going to be satisfying to people all over the, all over the country. What, would, what should we do for a motivation and a... I don't want to say a boycott for the government uh, democracy that uh, you were talking about. Um, can you say a bit more about what, what you have in mind? To make the government uh, preservable and uh, the guidelines. Mm -hmm. Well, unfortunately, I... <laughs> Unfortunately, I think it, it, it will have to get worse before, uh, before it, gets, it gets better. Um, and historically, it has been in confrontation um, with very grave and, and real, not, not abstract risks um, that we've seen sort of paradigm changes uh, in American politics. So uh, the... the Civil War, of course, is, is the most famous, but the Second World War and early Cold War uh, were, were another. And early uh, in the 19th century, um, questions related to slavery but also to territorial expansion um, posed a similar crisis. So my, my judgment of the history um, is that sort of positive motivation and uh, rhetorical appeals are unfortunately not very, not very successful. I mean, it's, it's fine to, to do them and maybe serve some purpose. Um, it's, it's in the confrontation with something that seems much worse that Americans tend to return to sobriety and to ask, well, how can we do the best that we possibly can with the resources uh, that, we have, that we have available? Um, so I, 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 don't, I don't hope for civil or international conflict by any means. I hope to avoid those things. Um, but it's sometimes in confrontation with that possibility um, that reform becomes more likely. Uh, thank you for your coming, and uh, especially thank you for bringing spring to West Michigan. We appreciate that so much. Uh, Christian nationalism seems to be recurring uh, resurgence in some areas. Would you relate to, to that and then relate to that to your concept of what a nation is? Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, so, so Christian nationalism is, is another one of these terms that people define in, in very different ways, and then they get into endless arguments about what the, what the term is rather than um, the, the matter at hand. So um, I, I, I should say what, how I define the term, and then I'll say something about how I perceive um, its, its role. So, so to me... Um, Christian nationalism uh, consists of, of three ideas. Um, first, that the United States is essentially and not merely historically Christian. So it's not just an observation about what the founders or other people thought or did or believed uh, in the past. It's a claim that somehow Christianity specifically is written into the, into the essence of the United States. So that's, that's the first one. Um, the, the second claim is the belief that that essence is somehow threatened or endangered or uh, in, in, uh, at risk of, of, of disappearance. And finally, uh, it's the view that it is a primary responsibility of government and especially of uh, the, the national government to address or, or restore or otherwise um, promote that, uh, that, that essence. So that's what I mean by Christian nationalism. And the reason I define it that way is that I think most uses of the term are just too broad and include all sorts of perfectly normal and healthy and common expressions of a kind of religiously informed patriotism that are just fine and, and more than just fine, I think, are, are, actually, um, are actually good. What about this more, uh, this more limited phenomenon? Well, first, and this is uh, my, my historian's role, um, it's, 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 nothing, it's nothing new, and people who say that this is only a product of um, the Trump administration or of the, the 1990s or whenever are, are wrong. This is a, this is a recurring uh, impulse in American history. It's also, I think, a much more limited one than is sometimes claimed. Um, and there are social scientists who have tried to investigate empirically um, the extent of Christian nationalism. Um, and in the data I've seen, they use far too broad a definition, and the, the kind of scare stories that have circulated um, are, rely on a very broad definition. And, but if you look at the data and apply narrower criteria, you're not talking about that many, uh, that many people. But finally, and probably what, what you're really interested in, what, what, do, um, what, do we, what do we do about that? Um, I, I think the only responses to provide a more appealing alternative, uh, which is not going to succeed with everyone. You can't convince everyone. And so long as they restrict their uh, activity within the boundaries of the law, they're, they're entitled to do that. Um, and one of the implications of my book is that we, we need to find ways of being more comfortable with really serious disagreement um, than we usually than we usually are, um, but I think, or I, I've uh, suggested in several places that 
rather than adopting um, a kind of debunking and condescending secularism, um, a better response is to say that there is, there is a special place uh, for religion and there is a special place for Christianity in American history um, and uh, American, American public life, but it's not an exclusive place in quite, in quite the same way. Um, and one of uh, the scholars um, who's advanced that argument better, better than, I ha than I can um, is John Inazu at Washington uh, University in, in St. Louis, who has uh, a concept of, of um, confident pluralism, um, which tries to avoid this, this, this sort of fearful sense of being under threat and overwhelmed and, uh, and attacked. And once again, that's not going to uh, convince everybody, um, but I think it is a more plausible and appealing alternative um, than, again, uh, what, what I've described as sort of a, a condescending and dismissive um, secularism that, that is not only historically misleading, but to return to the, the other gentleman's question, um, makes, makes too many people feel dismissed, uh, disrespected, or otherwise, uh, otherwise excluded. An easy question: um, How should America, excuse me, how should America handle uh, Putin in Ukraine? <laughs> well, thank you for th thank you for the the, the easy question. Um, and uh, once again, I, I must sort of disclaim the limits of of my of my expertise. Um, I am not a foreign policy scholar, um, and although I do sometimes uh, express opinions on these matters, uh, I, I, I don't really claim any special expertise. Um, my, my own view, which I've expressed in, in my columns, uh, is that the risk of nuclear war with Russia is very, very serious and not something that we should play around with. Um, uh, but we should support uh, efforts by the Ukrainians to defend themselves from, uh, from invasion. And, uh, you know, I, I have to say, I, I'm, I'm not normally um, an admirer of this administration, but on this issue, they seem to be doing a pretty good job. Um, and I, I think it was right um, that uh, the president has, has ruled out a no-fly zone, which sounds appealing um, in, in the abstract, um, but if you actually think about what's, what's involved is a terrifying uh, idea. Um, and that seems to be the emerging consensus to provide, uh, to provide weapons, to continue um, economic sanctions, um, but to avoid direct military encounters. Um, that, that, that said, um, I, I do worry that um, opposition to the policy of, of the Russian government can turn into um, a, a kind of uh, anti-Russian frenzy of, of a kind that is familiar in American history. And I, I talk in my book about the campaign against um, the, the German-American culture um, of 
this part of the world, more or less, the, the sort of of, of the upper uh, of the upper Midwest during World War One, where not just uh, the German government or German conduct in the war, but anything to do with German culture was was stigmatized and sometimes legally or illegally uh, repressed. Um, so I I, ha I I'm worried about. Um, bans on Russian artists or Russian-themed products, which are not always even produced in Russia. I mean, often it's just, it's just branding. Um, I think we should really be doing the, the opposite, trying to draw a, a distinction um, between Russian culture and Russian people uh, and uh, their, their government. And one, one reason that I think we need to do that is that it is possible, and once again, um, predictions can be foiled and many unexpected things have happened over the last few years, but it is at least possible, and I would say likely, that this is not a conflict that's going to have a clear and decisive end in a couple of months or uh, a, couple, a couple of years. We may be in it for the long haul again. Um, and just as during uh, the, the Cold War, um, there were efforts to distinguish between the communist government and Russian people and, and culture, I, I think we need to do uh, the, same, um, the same today. Again, not out of um, uh, humanitarianism or sort of fuzzy cosmopolitanism, but, but as, as a matter uh, of national interest. I had to be very careful not to go down any too bad Ukraine-Russian discussion here. I see emerging theme, because I tend to watch CGNT, China propaganda television. But... Their angle, along with India, Indian, along with Al Jazeera, is really starting to put a wedge saying that it's the Russian against the woke culture. Mm -hmm. I don't see that as a discussion on our side. So they're actually bringing it from a total other angle and setting up some. I'm just curious on your yeah. take of it from that drink, because that's directly their opinion on it more and more, being like it's the woke West against solid virtues and yeah i don't i don't i don't yeah i don't i don't think this has anything to do with with wokeness i mean i i i think um uh, russian um attempts to dominate ukraine are a product of geopolitical interests and political tendencies that extend all the way back through the Soviet Union to to the czars. Um, and we need no no reference to wokeness to explain what what um, they're they're doing. And uh, on the contrary, some of the events of the last four weeks sort of flip some of those concerns. So I found in my Twitter feed until quite recently, these tributes to the, the manliness and macho-ness of, of the, the Russian army and how they were, you know, they were really dominating fighters because they weren't, they weren't woke and they didn't have human relations uh, seminars and, and so on. Um, but it's, it's, it's turned out that um, all sorts of Ukrainians, woke or not, I have no idea, but all sorts of people exp expressing all sorts of views um, are, are quite effective um, when they are fighting for something that they really, uh, that they really care about. So uh, you say it's um, Chinese propaganda television. Um, I think um, this sounds like a, a propaganda argument. Um, um, I don't think um, wokeness or cancel culture um, is, is a major cause of what's happening here.
Hi, my name is Dylan. I work here at Acton. Uh, thank you so much for that lecture. Um, I really appreciate how you took uh, what would seem like a simple question um, and added a lot of historical and other nuance in terms of, is the United States a nation? So I want to ask a, a question along the same lines in which uh, perhaps the obvious answer is too simplistic. Uh, and that is, what is an American? How do you answer that? So um, I'll, I'll give uh, an old answer, and I'll give, then I'll give my answer. Um, so uh, in, in his um, letters from an American farmer, uh, Hector St. John uh, Crevcor, um, who was uh, uh, French by, by birth um, and then uh, moved to the British colonies, lived briefly in what had become the United States and then, then went back to France, confronts uh, this, this, this question. And in, in a famous passage, um, he says, um, what, is the, what is the American? He is someone whose father was English, whose wife is Dutch, whose Children married native and uh, uh, German German women. He sort of goes through the, this whole litany, and he concludes the American is is the the man of the future. And you know that that's that's certainly the most quoted sentence or pa passage that Krevkor uh, ever wrote. Um, it may be among the most quoted passages that, that anyone has, has ever written, and that's because it's, it's flattering in certain ways. I mean, it reflects this, this idea that anyone can become an American, and it's through these encounters and mixtures that we, we realize ourselves most, most fully. Um, it's also a partial answer, and in the, in the book, I talk about the, the literary context for it. And one of the things that's interesting is that in that passage, it, it's spoken through the mouth of a character. Um, uh, who's, who's called James. He's, he's a real, a, a genuine American farmer is how Krefcourt describes him. And James lives in Pennsylvania. And right before the bit that everyone quotes, uh, James says, now, of course, when I talk about what an American is, I'm not talking about New England. I'm talking about us here in Pennsylvania. Because in New England, they're all, they're all, real, they're all real Englishmen. And that's, that's different. But west, west of the Hudson, we have uh, this, this um, polyglot uh, quality. So even in this passage that's become iconic, there's a very clear, uh, there's a very clear distinction. So um, what is what is uh, an American? What's my my answer? I mean, my 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 instinct um, is to recur to the category of, of citizenship um, and to uh, the the oath of naturalization, uh, which uh, requires renunciation um, of allegiance to foreign powers and authorities and an affirmation of the uh, legitimacy um, and, and authority of the Constitution and, and its, its officers. Um, and, you know, anyone, anyone who can swear that uh, honestly is, is good enough to be an American to me. As always, thank you for listening. Our team loves putting this podcast together for you. It's encouraging to hear from our listeners. Feedback is incredibly important to us because it lets us know what you'd like to hear more of, including the kinds of topics you're interested in most. If you have comments, feedback, or ideas for a show topic or interesting guest, you can email our team at producer at acton.org. Until next week, for Acton Vault, I'm Eric Cohn.